God, we pray that you would speak your word into our heart and you would seal it with your spirit and we would know even as we are known. Jesus, this is like, I don't know, number 30 or 31 of the sermons from the book of Romans. And so I pray that you would help us remember all the sermons before, which is hard for people that are here for the first time. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would connect the dots and that we would see and we would know what you want us to see, what you want us to know, what you want us to be this morning. So Jesus, I ask that you would preach us even as we're preaching you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Dad, guess what? Mm -hmm. You know my friend Amanda? Yep. Her cousins asked us to spend vacation with them in Paris. I really, really want to go. Hi, Daddy. You were supposed to call me when you land. There's someone here. What? Oh my God, they got Amanda. They got me. All right, listen to me. Go to the next bedroom, under the bed. Tell me when you're there. Now, the next part is very important. They are going to take you. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you are looking for a ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. Where are they? If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. You have a 96 hour to what? To never finding her. No. But if you don't, I will look for you. Where is she? I will find you. And I will kill you. Good luck. I never actually saw that movie because I figured that I knew what it was all about. And I think you probably know what it's all about just from, from the trailer. But I did read the, the plot summary on Wikipedia just a couple of days ago. Liam Neeson plays ex-Green Beret and CIA operative Brian Mills who gets this frantic call from his daughter on, on a trip in, in Europe as men break into her hotel room and attempt to abduct her and her friend. Turns out that they're sex traffickers planning to sell Brian's daughter as a harlot. But it also turns out that Brian Mills has a particular set of skills. The movie had two sequels. The, the, the trilogy, all three of them, grossed $992.5 million dollars. So it hit a chord with us. I mean, wouldn't we all like a set of skills? And wouldn't we all like to be men and women of action, like Brian Mills? Listen, Satan, I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you want. If you're looking for a ransom, I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. We all want to be people of action, so we come to church and say, well, pastor, tell me what to do. 
and we all want skills. As Napoleon Dynamite once says, girls want boys with skills, nunchuck skills, bow hunting skills, computer hacking skills. So pastor, teach me some skills, some demon fighting skills, healing skills, raising the dead skills. And if you can't do that, well, then let's at least just, you know, form a committee. But we come to church and sometimes, sometimes it seems like all we get is words. And I anticipate that you may be feeling that about now regarding Paul's letter to the Romans. Hey Peter, we started out pretty well a, a year ago. A year ago. Paul talked about all sorts of things that we shouldn't do. And then he revealed that we had done them all and then for 10 chapters, it's like just words. And so what am I supposed to do? Well, if you want to know what to do, it's coming. Chapters 12 through 15. And you are uh, more than welcome to read ahead. But if you're not doing everything in chapters 12 through 15 and doing it because you want to, well, perhaps you haven't heard the word. You may be even crucifying the word, and so you need to go back to the garden and listen. You know, there was a time when the church seriously changed the world, and they really had no skills. And at that time, church committees were illegal. There were some miracles, but also a whole lot of martyrdoms it seemed as if all they had were some, some words. Words preached by ridiculous little men like Paul of Tarsus and then whispered and sung and repeated by slaves and prisoners and women. In Romans 10, you remember Paul quoted Moses speaking to a nation of slaves saying, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. And then Moses says, so you can do it. So the word was in the Israelites 3,500 years ago. And it was in the folks who received Paul's letter 2,000 years ago, and it's in you, right now. And Paul told us that the word is Christ, who is the word of faith that we proclaim, that, that, we, that we preach. But even faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by a word of Christ. Quoting the Old Testament, Paul showed us that the word is constantly whispered by all creation. It's sung when we have failed and so nailed it to a tree, but it conquers in a garden where it walks out of a tomb. Nothing is more powerful than the word. For, for reality itself, is the work of the word, and reality is good, and everything else, everything evil, then, is more like an illusion or a bad dream, which implies that all of us are dreaming. For in our reality, evil seems quite real, and none of our words seem to matter. It's like they're all dead. Romans 10.20, okay, this is our, our text. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. That's Isaiah writing 
but the word of the Lord speaking. It was through Isaiah that the Lord informed us that a word of righteousness has gone out from his, his mouth and it won't return empty, but it will accomplish that for which it was sent. It even finds folks that weren't looking. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I've been found by those who did not seek me. I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, but of Israel, he says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Now, you see, this is a tremendous problem for Paul, and it's the problem that he's been wrestling with. In 9.6, he's asked that question that we talked about, has the word of God failed? And not just failed with anybody, but failed with his own people, his church, to whom belongs the adoption, the promises, and even Christ, according to the flesh. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people. You know, if you read the Old Testament, boy, it sure seems like God has rejected his people. In Deuteronomy 31, just after Moses says the stuff about the word is, is in them, you know, so they can do it, God tells Moses, he, after Moses says that, he tells Moses that Israel will whore after foreign gods and quote, now I'm quoting Deuteronomy 31, I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be devoured. And then he teaches Moses the song that they're to sing in that day, the song which is the story of how he will redeem them. But first he says that he will forsake them and devour them. Paul's been quoting Deuteronomy and Isaiah throughout Romans 10. In Isaiah 43, 27, God says this, I will deliver Jacob, remember that's Israel, to utter destruction, haram in Hebrew. That's the very same thing he did with Jericho. I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. And then he says, fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Pretty weird, huh? I asked then, has God rejected his people? Well, Nazis and a whole lot of Christians have said, well, of course he's rejected his people because they have rejected him, and so they're no longer his people. Hell is full of Jews, just like Judas. American evangelicals will then argue, no, 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 no. God has actually blessed his people with some real estate in the Middle East and the military support of the United States of America, some of my tax dollars, but, but, but yeah, after that, he will reject them forever and torture them endlessly with fire because, you know, God is love, but free will and stuff. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, may genoito, hell no, in the most strongest words that Paul can find, hell no. And then he writes, for I myself am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not uh, rejected his people whom he foreknew. God has not rejected his people, but this is the problem. His people have rejected him and his word, who is, as we have learned, 
the righteousness of God. That's what Paul has been describing. Remember, this was Romans 10.3. Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Actually, they took his life on a tree in a garden. And why was that? Well, they were men of action. And they wanted his skills. On November 14th, 1994, my daughter Becky would have just turned three, and Elizabeth was five. I remember I was driving down the mountain from work listening to the radio when Paul Harvey told a story that just like rocked me to the core. He told of a young father who had a six-year-old daughter, the love of his life. Wanting to play a game with her dad, she went and hid in the closet planning to jump out and surprise him with hugs and giggles. But when this young father heard the rustling in the closet, he imagined that he had found an intruder. And so wanting to protect his daughter, he got his gun and snuck up to the closet door. When his daughter jumped out and yelled, Boo! He shot her, dead. Before he heard the word, he pulled the trigger. As she lay bleeding, her last words were these. Daddy, I love you. Can you imagine? I mean, I think that would literally unmake me. I cannot think of a harsher judgment on Peter Hyatt's ego than, than that. You know, the Israelites had waited for over 1,500 years for the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Promised Seed, the Root of Jesse, the Root of David. For an Israelite, he was the distillation of all their hopes and all their longings. He was the love of their life. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but when he refused to use his skills as they desired, they figured they must have been, well, you know, mistaken. And so imagining that they were doing the work of the Messiah, they crucified the Messiah, and his last words were these, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And into your hands I commit, I surrender my breath, my spirit. It's the greatest uh, crime in history, what they did. And what should be their punishment? Would you send them to hell? Jesus said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. They are our Lord's brothers. And so wishing them to hell is wishing Jesus to hell, which is literally wishing your life to hell, which is exactly like shooting your own daughter when she jumps out of the closet to surprise you. Actually, it's worse because you would never wish endless torture on your own flesh and blood. Being ignorant of the word and seeking to establish their own word, they did not surrender to God's word, but they took action. Maybe if we would have just surrendered to God's word, we would have been known by God's word and not tried to establish our own word. And we would have avoided the Holocaust in Nazi Germany for Christians would have seen Jews as temples containing their very own life. 
And we would have avoided the Middle East crisis and all the suffering of the Palestinians for the children of Isaac would have seen the children of Ishmael as their own flesh and not as intruders in the house of God. And we would have avoided the war in Iraq and hundreds of thousands of dead civilians and now famine in Afghanistan. For in the aftermath of 9-11 that might not have happened, we might have realized they don't know what they're doing. And we don't know what we're doing, but we are all the children of Adam. We might have heard the word before we took action. Well, anyway, hopefully you see that it wasn't only the children of Israel that took the life of the word on the tree in the garden. When we look on the one whom we have pierced, we will be undone. And only the word of God will be able to put us back together. Or perhaps put us together, like for the very first time. Romans 11.1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God? Elijah appeals to God against Israel? Paul's referring to 1 Kings 19, in which all of Israel's been seduced by Ahab and Jezebel, seduced to play the harlot with Baal and Asherah, the Canaanite fertility gods. Ahab and Jezebel are like the epitome of evil in, in Israel at that time. And of course, the epitome of, of evil in Israel in Paul's time was probably Judas and the high priests of Israel who bought and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver as if he was a harlot and we were his pimps. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah wants to just give up on Israel. He's had it. But the word of God meets Elijah in a cave on Mount Sinai, the, the mountain of the Lord, a cave which turns out to be a womb, and, and the word says to Elijah, Elijah, there are still 7,000, a remnant who are faithful to me. A, a remnant, and of course, by the end of the sixth day, in the garden on Mount Calvary, that Friday, there's only one that is faithful. And that's the seed. The word of God hanging on a tree. Verse two, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if you're anything like me, Paul has lost you at this point. And I think that he has basically lost Western civilization at, at this point. He's arguing that God has not rejected his people because there's this remnant of his people. 7,000, which seems like a weirdly prophetic number, but in 1, Corinthians, 1 Kings 19, we know that all we know of is like these 100 prophets in these two caves somewhere. But no matter what the size, just one, like a seed, or 7,000, this is the question. What does the few... The remnant have to do with the whole. 
I mean, Elijah is Elijah, and Ahab is Ahab, so just kill Ahab and let Elijah go. And apparently God does kill Ahab, and yet God does the same thing with Moses <laughs> and all of Israel. But now, this is the question, what does the remnant have to do with the whole? Paul just said, God hasn't rejected his people for, for this is why, because I myself am an, an Israelite. And we all say, so what, Paul? Paul is Paul. And the people are the people. And yet this is the weird way the Bible speaks about the people of Israel. Remember in uh, chapter 9, we noted that when Paul writes, not all of Israel are Israel, he seems to be speaking of the man, like Abraham and Isaac, the man, Israel. But now he's speaking of the people of Israel, as if the people of Israel were just one man, and not the individual man that lived 3,500 years ago. So if you're, you're like me, this may be what has made the Old Testament rather unintelligible, which just might be making Jesus rather unintelligible as well. Take Deuteronomy 30, for instance, the, you know, the speech that Paul has been quoting, okay? So, through Moses, God says to Israel, and if, if the slide goes out, then just listen. Maybe that's best anyway. God says to Israel, and when all these things come upon you, singular, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, singular, and you, singular, call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return the Lord and return to the, to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. He says, not just that God is using the second person singular pronoun you, but that he's using it over the span of thousands of years in reference to hundreds of millions of persons in hundreds of millions of places, including Sheol, which gets translated as Hades, which is sometimes translated in English as hell. So I used to read the Old Testament and think, you know, all these promises suck. I mean, so what if your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren get to move back to Israel? <laughs> if you're languishing in hell. I went to the nation of Israel, and they said, isn't this great? This is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament promises. And I thought, well, then, those promises suck. I mean, nice for you with your condo on the beach, but not for the six million that died in the Holocaust or the entire generation, the entire generation that left Egypt with Moses only to descend into Sheol before entering the promised land. And yet God says, I'm going to gather you, singular, as he looks at those Israelites 3,500 years ago in the desert. In the prophets, it's the very same thing. God speaks to Israel as if all of them are one person. 
saying stuff like this in Isaiah 43 that we mentioned just a few moments ago. I will deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. Next verse. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen, fear not. I will put my spirit on your seed. It seems to refer to them as one man who must somehow be destroyed and somehow resurrected. And so modern Western scholars read Isaiah and the prophets and they say, well, it's all poetic language. You can't take it seriously. And it's obviously got nothing to do with Jesus. Well, anyway, my point right now is that in the Old Testament and the New, it's as if you cannot be a someone if you're not a part of everyone. It's as if you cannot be an individual unless you're connected somehow. It's as if you cannot be a real person without other persons. At the end of World War II, there are a couple hundred French POWs that suffered from amnesia. And so one day, having published their pictures in the papers, the authorities gathered this crowd at the Paris Opera House, stood those 200 soldiers up front, and then one by one, they would step forward and they would pleadingly say, does anybody know who I am? And what did they want? ID numbers? Addresses? They wanted stories about relationships with persons. For if they got those, they would discover themselves, and part of that crowd would suddenly become a family, like Cain and Abel, or Isaac and Ishmael, or Jacob and Esau, or Jesus and Judas from Judah, his brother. Well, that's a thought to ponder. But you see, it's rather inconceivable for the Old Testament Hebrew mind that God might save one and not save all of your family or your tribe or your nation. For one is all and all are one. And, and you know, you know this. You know, especially if you're getting older like me. The older you get, the more you know this. I can't tell you the number of people that have said to me something like this. Peter, I used to think it was simple. You know, like maybe God sent suicides and sex offenders to hell. And then my daughter told me she was gay. And my son shot himself in the head. If they're not in heaven, I don't want to go. Because they are who I am. So who's Peter Hyatt? I honestly wouldn't have a clue without Susan and Jonathan, and Elizabeth, and Rebecca, and Coleman, and Dan, and Evelyn Hyatt, and Rachel, and Lydia Hyatt, and Andrew, and, and Alan, and, and Francis, and Aram, and 
Brian Newman and my old, all my old friends in the EPC. I wouldn't know who I am without all of these relationships in which I loved and was loved and even longed for love and didn't get it yet. So you see, what I'm saying is if my daughter isn't saved, how could I be saved? And if her husband Francisco is not saved, how could she be saved? And if her husband's dad, if Francisco's dad isn't saved, you see, this is a web of faith, hope, and love extending to everyone. That's anyone. When I'm honest, when I'm honest, I have to admit that my psyche, my life, my soul is inseparably linked to all these other psyches. When I'm honest. But I'm often not honest. Why? Because it feels unsafe. Love feels unsafe. Several times Jesus said this, if you seek to save your psyche, you'll lose it. But if you lose your psyche for my sake, you'll find it. You see, there's something wrong with my psyche. And what's that? It only wants to save itself. And yet only wanting to save itself is literally losing itself. Because my psyche is literally comprised of all these relationships with all these other psyches, psyches which each began in a relationship with God who breathed them into existence in the first place. And yet Jesus tells me if I lose my psyche for his sake, I'll find it. In other words, I'll get myself and all of my relationships back, but in a new way. At the cross, my self-centered psyche is literally undone. And yet, I get it back. I get that psyche back in a new way because all of my relationships are no longer harlotry, but the freedom of unconditional love, and that's the psyche of Jesus, who's the head of the body. The church, the Israel of God, is not an institution. We're a body. And if we've heard the word, which is literally the logic, the logos of life, then we are a body that is rising from the dead. For we will love as we have been loved, and life is a communion of sacrificial love. Well, my point, my point is that if Israel is not only many, but also one, then Paul's argument makes perfect sense, right? He's saying that there's something left to save in Israel, and you can't save that something without saving all of Israel. A father knows this. He knows that he can't be saved unless his children are saved, for he knows that he is somehow in his children. In Luke 15, the father isn't saved until his prodigal son is saved, and his self-righteous older brother is also saved. Only then, and you remember the story ends with the father out in the field with the self-righteous older brother standing there in the dark, but, but only then when both of them are saved can dad enjoy the party. 
A father knows that his physical seed is in his children, but he's also come to realize that the seed is so much more than physical. I remember years ago, sitting on our old couch with um, Elizabeth, when she must have been about 12 months old, I was feeding her goldfish crackers. You know, that's what you do at that age. And she was just covered in (laughs) boogers, spit, and orange mush. Everybody else would have been totally repelled. But suddenly, I saw a thought enter her little brain. She reached in her mouth, and she pulled out a glob of orange goo. She put it in my mouth, and then she smiled. (laughs) And I remember I was just undone. I suddenly realized that the spirit in her was communing with the spirit in me, and it was the same spirit. She was me, and me was she, and so saving her would be saving me, and saving me would always be saving her. See, I suspect that parents know this about their children, about their children, for they know and they are known by their children before their children take from the tree of knowledge and begin to judge themselves, justify themselves, and then hide in an ego. You see, no one told Elizabeth. Elizabeth, the right thing to do, the thing you should do, is sacrifice goldfish fathers to your father. An offering. But Elizabeth's love was free love. Even though she didn't yet know who or what it was, it was like an eternal seed that had been planted in that little bundle of dust. But over time, Elizabeth would judge it try to justify it and try to become it. And so trying to create herself, she would stop being herself. We often refer to that as junior high, but it really extends over your entire lifetime. But dad knows and mom knows that the seed's still there. Not because we read about it in a book of law, but because we know it, for it has known us. It has put orange goldfish goo in our mouths, smiled and said, Daddy? It's true of everyone, everyone that's anyone. But you don't know it, and they don't know it, for they're caught in the illusion that they are their own creator, unaware that they are the creation of God by means of his word. It must have been, I don't know, a couple years later that Rick and Kathy Nolan invited us over to their, to their house for a, for a church party. We all gathered around their swimming pool, laughing, eating hors d'oeuvres, enjoying the summer evening. And I had laid down the law, particularly, this was important, particularly for Elizabeth. Elizabeth, do not play next to the pool. So I was talking to some friends. I heard a little splash. And I kept talking. But I thought, you know, maybe I should check on Elizabeth. And when I turned around, she wasn't there. And then I saw her in the bottom of the deep end, floating alone in silence. And immediately, I mean immediately, as if Elizabeth was connected to my own autonomic nervous system. You know, when you put your hand on the stove, you you, you don't have to even think to yourself, I should move my hand. Your autonomic base of your brain does the thinking for you. Immediately, as I mean, as if Elizabeth were my own flesh, 
I dropped my food, threw myself in the pool, swam her back to the service, pulled her out, held her close to my chest as she started to breathe, and I thanked God uncontrollably for her life, which was my own life, which is still our life. She'd broken my law, but I didn't give a shit. I mean, I only put the law in place because of the love of her. Immediately, I became a man of action and I employed all my skills, not because someone told me I should, but because it was who I am. I'm Elizabeth and Elizabeth is me and no matter how many laws she breaks, how wretched she becomes, I know who she is under all the crap that her ego may have manufactured. I know there's always something infinitely valuable to save for that something has known me, put mush in my mouth and called me daddy, <laughs> dad. And I will always know there's something infinitely valuable to save and that I can't be saved unless she is saved for she is me. So why did Brian Mills, ex-Green Beret, CIA operative, suddenly become a man of such action, employing all of his skills? Was it because someone came along and said, you know what, Brian Mills, you really should save girls that have been taken by pornographers, and, and if you do, if you do, we'll give you a salary and benefits. Or was it because he had heard the word on the other end of the phone and the word was, Daddy? And so he didn't even have to think. He dropped everything, dove in the pool, just as quick as you pull your own finger out of a flame. What if everybody is one body? And that's your body, the body of our Lord. What if everybody has a father? even if they've been convinced that they don't. In the movie Taken, Brian Mills' daughter is taken by sex traffickers who try to sell her as a whore, and Brian Mills uses his skills to, to save her, and of course he kills her captors in the process. But what if your daughter is taken by a lie? And so she sells herself as a whore. Well, then you're going to need something much more powerful than the skills of Brian Mills. For if you kill her captor, well, you'd be killing her. Why? Because she needs to be saved from herself. And so do you. And this is what Paul has been revealing in the last 10 chapters. We need to be saved from ourselves. We need to be saved from our bad decisions with a, a good free decision called faith or faithfulness. And, and it comes by a word, and at first it's only the size of a, of a seed. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he hears the seraphim cry, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Then Isaiah is called to preach Israel, preach Israel down to a remnant. But then even the remnant gets burned down to a stump, which is a root, and that root is the holy seed. It's the psyche of God, our Lord Jesus. I think Paul is saying that just as Jesus was in the body of Israel as a seed, so the word exists in the depths of each one of us. Perhaps not abiding in us or at home in us, but imprisoned in us. 
like a spirit in a jar of clay, or a seed buried in the ground, or eternity behind the curtain in the sanctuary of a soul. He was breathed into us in the beginning by our Father, and he's worth saving. He's worth raising from the dead. So like Moses said to the Israelites, the word is in you. And like Jesus said to us, whatever you do to the least of these my brothers, you do to me. Each of us and all of us have been taken by a lie, and so we have imprisoned the word in the stone temple that is our hardened heart, our ego. But when the word preached communes with the word in our soul, in the sacrament of the covenant even, we are begotten from above, the curtain rips, and the life of God begins to fill the temple like a baby fills a womb. But my temple is actually our temple, for we are literally the body of Christ, which is the Israel of God. Not an institution, but a communion, a communion called life. So once you've heard the word, well, you'll know what to do. Not as knowledge taken from a book of law, but more like life given and then flowing through your veins. You'll know what to do and you'll have the skills to do it. You'll bleed grace and you'll speak the word, the logic of life, sacrificial love. That's a skill far more powerful than any that the Green Berets or CIA could ever teach you. That's the work of the Word who creates all things and brings all things together. Now I know this is hard to believe, but I actually produce these graphics myself. <laughs> I don't know if they're exactly accurate, but hopefully you get the idea. Okay, Romans 11, verse 5. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Verse 6, but if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking, the elect, eklage, or eklego, the called, the chosen, obtained it. Now, this is really important. Remember that the point of election is not that some are chosen for heaven and others are chosen for hell. The point is that God is the one that chooses, the one that elects. So you're not rewarded for your good free choice. Your good free choice is God's gracious choice given to you. In other words, you're not rewarded for love. For there is no greater reward than to love and be loved. God is love. And love binds everything together. That's God's choice. And if you think it's simply your choice, you're dreaming. Verse 7, the elect, the chosen, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. That's Isaiah 29.10, and in the Hebrew, spirit of stupor is this fascinating word, tardemah, used only a few times in the Old Testament. Genesis 2, before the fall, God puts Adam in a tardemah. And there's no mention of God waking Adam up until at least Isaiah 52. Or maybe Easter. In Isaiah 29, Israel is dreaming, if you read it, you read it sometime, they're, they're dreaming that they are their own creator. It's the dream in which each of us is trapped. It's the product of the lie 
that's become a nightmare that we often call our ego. So Paul writes, God gave them a spirit of stupor, tardema, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs always. Now that's David in Psalm 69, verse 22, but check this out, it's also Jesus, who's the word in David. Psalm 69 includes words that Jesus obviously spoke. We know that from the New Testament. Psalm 69, 21, the word before it is, they, they gave me sour wine to drink. You see, maybe the word is waking David from a dream that had become a nightmare. <laughs> what, 2,700 years, 3,000 years, something like that ago. Verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? That is, did God harden their hearts? Did God trip them up just so that they'd fall? Hell no, meganoita. By no means. Rather, through their trespass, their misstep, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel zealous or jealous. Do you remember how the prodigal father poured his mercy on the prodigal son? He didn't do that just for the love of his prodigal son. He did that for the love of his self-righteous son who was caught in the deepest, the deepest darkness. He did it so both sons, all his sons, would believe that everything is grace and so be able to enjoy the party. Well, my, my point is this. If Israel is not only many, but also one, then Paul's argument makes perfect sense. He's saying there's something left to save in Israel, and you can't save that something without saving all of Israel. A father, a father just, just knows this. Now, if their trespasses means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Their full inclusion, that's what it says. God is and always has been saving Israel, all of Israel. For his word was spoken into Israel in the beginning as a seed. And now he can't save one without saving all. And he is that one. He is Abba Daddy, the father who can't save himself without saving his children, all his children, his family. He can't enjoy the party if you remain alone in the outer darkness. He can't raise Jesus from the dead without raising his body. I can't be saved without you, for I am you, whispers Jesus from behind the curtain in the sanctuary of your soul. If you've heard the word, the, the curtain will rip and you will know what to say and all your skills will be employed in saying it. But if you haven't heard the word, well, you'll only speak law and you won't bring life, you'll only spread death. You, you'll believe that some are hated and some are loved and you must save people from the judgment of God when in fact it's the judgment of God to save people from themselves. 
But if you've heard the word, you'll speak the word even as the word calls to you from the soul of your neighbor saying, who am I? You'll listen and then you'll respond, I know who you are. You're a temple. And the spirit is deep within you. You're a manger that contains the Christ child. You're a theater for the revelation of the glory of God. I know who you are, and I know who we are. We're a family. We're a body. We're a party just waiting to happen. If, if only someone would save us from our insecure, competitive, and arrogant selves, we're one. I am you, and you are me, and so I can't be saved without you. When asked who would be in heaven, Abraham Lincoln replied, everyone or no one. Abraham Lincoln had heard the word, and so he became a man of action. And I'm not referring to battles fought with guns. I'm referring to his words. He didn't just save the north from the south or the south from the north. He saved the nation from division and death. A few months ago, when visiting my daughter Becky in Washington, D.C., Susan and I one morning went and visited the Lincoln Memorial. And as I was standing there reading the Gettysburg Address, they have it engraved in stone up there in the monument, I got to the middle where Lincoln is, is saying or arguing that we can't dedicate these soldiers, but we must dedicate ourselves. When Susan walked up next to me and she was all excited, she said, Peter, I just heard Jesus. And this is what he said. So many voices yet to be heard. So many people yet to be freed. I think Jesus is asking you, calling to you, calling to me, asking us to listen for his voice in the voice of our neighbor. and then speak to our neighbor, saying, I know who we are. For on the night that he was betrayed, the word of God in flesh took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, and after supper, he took the cop and said, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. This is the word of God. In flesh. Incarnate. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, desire of nations bind, all people in one heart and mind. 
That's not a heresy. That's answered prayer. So Lord Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of glories, and I thank you for all that you've done for me and for us. And Lord God, I know that we've had all sorts of theories and ideas about why you hung on that tree or had to hang on to that tree. Jesus, I think what Paul is saying, it's not simply that you took our place. You enter our place. And you actually make us your place. And you whisper from behind the curtain, I can't be saved now <laughs> without you. For I have made you me. And so right now, maybe you've never even prayed this. But maybe as you were listening to this sermon, you thought, dang, I hope that's true. Maybe that hope is just the size of a seed. Well, for a moment, live in that hope. Walk into that hope. Because this is what I think Jesus is asking you to pray. Dad, just right now, you can just say that. Dad, Help me. Save me. From myself. With yourself. When we cry, Abba, Father, writes Paul, when we cry, Daddy, it is the Spirit himself. That's the Spirit of Jesus. Bearing witness with our spirit, now testifying to this fact that we are children of God. Doesn't mean there won't be sufferings. You're in the process of being born. But have hope because our dad is good all the time. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Scripture says that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and they seemed to really enjoy it, those tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders had trouble, but the tax collectors and sinners enjoyed it. Jesus ate with tax collectors. So we, we have arranged for you to eat with tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> We're having a picnic on the patio. Now, as you eat with these people, you'll notice some faults. Just trust me, you will. But what will you say? How will you respond at that point? I've always been amazed at uh, Jesus, how he could say really hard things, like, yes, you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. Or go and sin no, sin no more. And, and yet sinners loved to party with Jesus. I suspect that it was because of the fact that even as Jesus spoke the hard truth, he incarnated the entire truth. And so with all his being, he communicated, I know who you are. 
and I know who we are. We're a party just waiting to happen. We're the kingdom of God. We're one, even as I and the Father are one. That means you're the answer to my prayer. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel.